0: And Welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week a special Pride Month-themed episode. This week, I'm going to be talking to you about the history of Nazism, specifically Nazism, and its relationship to homosexuality. I will also be touching on the origins and continued use of the Pink Triangle as a symbol of both the survival of Nazi oppression and Nazi extermination, and also now as a symbol of gay and queer pride in the modern world. I'm going to start out by talking about the history of Nazis and homosexuality. I have released a bunch of episodes that are about Nazism specifically as an ideology. If you want to hear more generic things about like what Nazism is and what fascism is, I suggest that you go listen to those episodes. Here I'm going to be talking specifically about Nazi's relationship to, and pretty specifically, male sexuality. Now, as a form of fascism in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, Nazism was officially opposed to homosexuality. They were opposed to all alternative forms of gender and sexual identity. They wanted people to live in generic, you know, cookie-cutter, standard, heteronormative relationships. They wanted men to marry women. They wanted those people to have the gender that most societies would have assigned them at birth. They wanted those people to have biological children, and they wanted them to be monogamous. That is what they expected of Germans. However... Nazis also had an extremely complicated relationship with gender and masculinity as such. The Nazis were obsessed with male form, with male power, with young, hale, attractive, powerful men. You know, they were obsessed with male bodies. They wanted young German men to train bodily and become, you know, powerful and beautiful examples of this future race. You can understand how these two perspectives one that was so, so enamored of male beauty and male power and male function and a different perspective that repudiated the possibility of loving men as a primary sexual and romantic identity, you can understand how these two things would have come into conflict. You know, there's a problem here, right? Rumors of the homosexuality of Nazi leaders plagued Nazi groups from their inception. This was partly because of some in retrospect, really bad propaganda created by the opponents of Nazis. But it's also because there was some truth to these rumors. In fact, the second most powerful Nazi up until their seizure of power, a man named Ernst Rom, somebody that I've released an episode about, he was a pretty openly secreted homosexual. Like, basically everybody knew, but it wasn't public knowledge. You know what I mean? He was murdered along with a lot of the other people in his command. He was the leader of the SA, a paramilitary organization that led the Nazis into power. He was murdered along with many of his other accomplices and, you know, aides in the SA in what has come to be known as the Night of the Long Knives, the primary episode of betrayal and, a, you know, an internal party purge that occurred after the Nazis took power. One of the priorities of the Nazis once they took power in Germany was the destruction of sexuality studies as a discipline, which was at the time extremely advanced in Germany, much more than it was in almost any other Western country. A lot of the book burnings that you might have seen photos of, some of the earliest ones of these were the destruction of the archives of many of these institutions and organizations and, you know, the personal and private libraries of people who studied sexuality So this was a very big priority for the Nazis, was eliminating homosexuality and eliminating the impression of homosexuality from Nazis in people's imaginations. This leads us directly onto the history of specific anti-queer and pretty specifically anti-homosexual oppression in the Nazi government. This brings us all the way back to the beginnings of the Holocaust system run by the Nazis, Before the Waldensee Conference, before mechanized murder, before Zyklon B, before the war, concentration camps were places where Nazi political and social enemies were placed, after their victory in 1933. This originally starts primarily with political enemies, so we're mostly talking about communists, other leftists, people who led other political parties that didn't want the Nazis to take power, and it then expanded to include other people. So we're talking about trade unionists, other people whom the Nazis deemed to be socially or politically unfit for the new German state. And then it expanded to include other people, people that they deemed to be medically or socially unfit for their new German society. This included people with physical or mental differences that the Nazis looked down on. And it also included pretty particularly male homosexuality. People who were transgender or transsexual were also included in this umbrella. Female homosexuals, so lesbians, were not quite so included in this. The Nazis, like many of the former German legislators who were trying to police female sexuality, didn't really know how to handle that. Homosexuality was already a criminal offense in the pre Nazi German code. This is a part of the German penal code that was known as paragraph 175. The Nazis' oppression against specifically, again, male homosexuals was an extension of this paragraph. Essentially, under the Nazi system, if a man was convicted on multiple homosexual offenses, as in like multiple acts of homosexual affection or public displays of affection or something like that, he might be sent to a concentration camp. These camps were more of the death by labor type of camp as opposed to the actual extermination camps that we would see later on once World War II has actually started. So that system starts in the mid-1930s. By 1938, the system of camps has expanded to the point that the Nazis find it necessary to differentiate the people in these camps in a uniform way, and this is where the armband system comes about. So you have almost certainly seen, at least in film or in a history textbook, the Star of David, the Yellow Star of David, on an armband used to indicate that someone is a Jewish person in Nazi Germany and then later on in the concentration camps. This is also where the pink triangle as an emblem of homosexuality comes from. Homosexual prisoners, people who were imprisoned and put in concentration camps because of committing homosexual acts, they wore pink triangles. This starts in 1938. The understanding from most observers and also from most scholars since then is that outside the camps, male homosexuals were relatively safe, much safer than Jewish people or political opponents of Nazism. There was a relative reluctance on the part of other Germans to turn in male homosexuals, and also a much higher reluctance to turn in female homosexuals. This meant that in Nazi Germany, there were still places where people could find sexual encounters, where they could meet their partners. There were places where homosexuality was relatively more accepted. There were even some gay bars that still operated under Nazi German rule, at least for a time. However, Inside the camps, things were quite different. Inside the camps, homosexuals were in severe danger. They had much higher death rates than almost any other category of prisoner aside from Jewish people. This is because they were much smaller in number. There were only about 6,000 homosexual men imprisoned in the Nazi prison system. However, over half of them died. This is a much higher proportion than essentially any other group imprisoned by the Nazis the exception of Jewish people. Now, after the war, after the concentration camps were liberated, most other prisoners of the system were returned to their homes, and many of them also got compensation from the new German states of East and West Germany. However, homosexual prisoners were an exception to this, because the law under which they were imprisoned, paragraph 175, stayed on the books. That meant that they were still criminals in German law. They were still criminals based upon their homosexuality. That meant that they were ineligible for the benefits given to survivors, as their sexuality, the reason that the Nazis were oppressing them, was still criminalized. Now, the pink triangle as a symbol of homosexual liberation didn't really appear until the late 60s and early 70s, as the gay liberation movement and grander queer liberation movement really got going. Specifically, the triangle became a symbol of homosexual liberation and resistance after the publication of a book called The Men with the Pink Triangle. This book was written by Hans Neumann after interviews that he conducted with a man named Josef Kohut, who was an Austrian man imprisoned in the Nazi system in 1939 after a letter between him and his partner, specifically a Christmas letter, was intercepted. This letter identified Kohut as gay. His lover did not go to the prison camps because his father, that is his lover's father, was a high-up Nazi official who got his son out of that particular sentence. Kohut, however, went to the prison camps and survived. He gave one of the only personal testimonies of actual Nazi persecution under the system of concentration camps, again, because this was still a criminal act. He was still describing being a criminal under the German system under which he lived. In West Germany, being homosexual was still a crime at the time that he gave these interviews, which meant that he was one of the only people to be open about what had happened to him. The book was published in 1972, and it was a watershed moment for the gay liberation and queer liberation movements. It was part of bringing the Nazi-era persecution into real historical memory. That's what historians call this when people actually think about and remember and engage with something in such a way that it enables them to really incorporate it into their understanding of what happened in the past. Prior to this, most people didn't really know that the Nazis oppressed homosexuals in the same ways that they oppressed other people that they deemed to be unfit for their new German system. And that was because of the silence that the survivors enacted upon themselves and also because of the silence that their society imposed on them because it didn't want to grapple with similarities between itself and the Nazi system. By the late 60s and early 70s, however, the return of this kind of historical memory of the Holocaust really brings the pink triangle as a key and controversial symbol of homosexual oppression. Some people at the time, and some people still today, argue that it falsely equates homosexual oppression with Jewish oppression, Uh, Others argue that homosexual oppression had been erased or forgotten, even as it continued under Nazi successor states like West Germany. East Germany was also similarly oppressive of homosexual acts, but it prosecuted them on a much lower level than West Germany did. Now, as we move into the present, the Pink Triangle remains an important and powerful symbol of gay liberation and of queer liberation it remains a way to connect the kind of oppression that people experienced under fascism with the kinds of oppressions that people experience today. So I'm going to close this episode by talking about the relationship between fascism and homosexuality and queerness right now. Early on, the alt-right, which is, you know, an umbrella term to refer to the, the present 21st century version of the extreme right wing. Early on, it was actually surprisingly okay with homosexuality, and by this I mean specifically male homosexuality, in a misogynist way. This mirrors the the Nazis' sort of complicated relationship with male homosexuality. Because early on, the alt-right was okay with homosexuality as a means of getting away from women and their power over men. They were okay with male homosexuality because it cut women out of society and celebrated masculine power in a way that the alt-right liked. This is how figures like Milo Yiannopoulos, who was at the time in the mid-2010s an openly gay man, could really reach the heights of the right-wing movement, which he was in, you know, in the mid-2010s. However, after Charlottesville, after Unite the Right, and after the splintering of the alt-right coalition that brought Donald Trump to power, this was really over. The far-right in the Anglo world and in the Western world in general came to be instead about extreme traditionalism, and thus turned to a very serious anti-queer position that included anti-male homosexuality. Of course, in the early 2010s, you know, the alt-right was also opposed to queerness. They were just okay with male homosexuality, right? Now the extreme right wing, not just in the United States, but in almost all of the world, is very extremely opposed to any form of gay power, gay liberation, gay existence, gay living. Right now we're seeing Nazis protesting outside of Disney Corporation, you know, outside of Disney World and Disneyland because of that major extreme big company's supposed homosexual agenda, just because it includes the existence of homosexual people in some of its narratives. We see states like Florida and many other states in the United States and many other countries in the world fight against the rights of trans people, not just to express their gender identities or to, you know, use medicines in order to conform their bodies to the way that they feel themselves to be, so the way that they want to be, but also just against their right to be, their right to exist. And the right wing in general is working towards the criminalization of homosexuality and queerness in general. This means that today, just as much as in the 1970s, when the pink triangle became a symbol of you know, vital resistance against a society that was ignoring the AIDS pandemic, today the pink triangle is a vital part of a kind of memory that our society really needs to remind us that the kind of oppression that people experienced in the past, just because it happened in the past, that doesn't mean that it can't happen again. The only way to prevent it from happening again is to work together to defeat Nazism, to defeat fascism, and to defeat what they are today, you know, to defeat their new forms in order to produce a better society. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. You can reach me on Gmail at 15minutfascism at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Twitter at histoftheright, that's H-I-S-T-of-The Right, and Fascism15, and again that's 15 spelled out. Thanks very much, and I'll talk to you on Thursday.